Christians know that we are supposed to be praying people. Christians also know that we are meant to be imitators of Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 11.1. So, I wonder if you've ever thought about what Jesus' prayer life teaches us about ours. I wonder if we have given enough reflection to the to the principles at work in Christ's prayers. I've not done that adequately in the past, but I hope that considering this text about Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane might help us gain some ground on that front. Christ's prayer in Gethsemane calls us to bold wrestling with God in prayer, combined with humble submission to God's will at the end of things. That twofold application, boldness and submission, can be difficult to balance. Boldness can make us feel as though God owes an answer to our prayers, and even that God owes the answer that we want. We might feel that way if we are confident in prayer. On the other hand, submissiveness, at times I think, can go too far in not thoroughly wrestling with God for our desires because we, in in some ways rightly, don't want to undermine our submissive stance before God. But in actuality, that's not genuine submission. That's not bringing our desires to God and submitting ourselves to what he would do. My goal here is is to prompt us into deeper fellowship with God in prayer by examining the way that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, but taking into account the theological features of this text that strengthen the, the dimension of wrestling with God in prayer. So the main point today is that Christ's example teaches us to wrestle with God in prayer, both boldly and submissively. Christ's example teaches us to wrestle with God in prayer, both boldly and submissively. The first way that we're going to think about this is by considering the Christ who prayed. So our first point is the Christ who prayed. And so what we're doing here is thinking about Jesus. Now, that that might seem obvious in a Christian sermon, but I mean that I want to think about the incarnate Christ himself. Christians believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, who is always with and equal with the Father from eternity. So Philippians 2, 5-7 explains how Christ, who is the eternal God, became the man, Jesus Christ. That Those verses say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. This passage tells us that Christ, prior to coming in human likeness, had the form of God and equality with God. 
in the incarnation, though. He did not insist on maintaining that equality in the same way that he possessed it in eternity, but became a servant by assuming human nature. Now, I might ask the kids especially to use their imagination right now. Okay, so imagine you're out in public, which takes some imagination right now, at a parade, a crowded parade, and you see the queen riding in her car as part of a big caravan in this parade. Now, this parade happens to pass by a city worker who's collecting rubbish from the public bins. But in this case, the man is struggling to do the job he was commissioned to do. Imagine, if you will, then, that the queen halts her caravan, leaves the car, goes over and helps this man collect this rubbish. Some might be shocked uh, or appalled to imagine such a thing. Queen, right, is far too important and regal to dream ever of condescending to participate in such an inelegant task. But that is exactly the point in Philippians 2. Christ really is far too important and regal to stoop to the level of servitude, which in this text is clearly equivalent to being a human being. Yet, God the Son did become a servant by coming in human likeness. And so if you are shocked at the thought of the queen engaging in a dingy act of public service, you should realize right now how much the Son of God actually did for you by becoming like you. Christ pointed to this unity and equality with the Father, even in one of his other prayers. We are thinking about Christ's prayer life this morning. So in, in John 17, verse 11, Jesus prayed, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, referring to his people, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. God the Son had become incarnate by taking on a human nature and was praying in light of his essential unity with God the Father. But the point that you need to see to bring this together is that God the Son was aware of his eternal relationship with the Father while he was on earth. Jesus Christ knew that he was the second person of the Trinity who had come in human form. Now, okay, why is all of this important for our text in Mark? Because Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is a portion of Scripture that has been really important in some of the historical debates about what the nature of the Son's incarnation is like. So what are the implications that God the Son asks the Father for things that he hoped would happen? He asked, after all, that the cup, which represented how he would drink to the very dregs God's curse for the elect, that that would be passed from him. And yet, God had willed to send the Son to do that very task. Now, okay, let's, let's think a little bit about 
the doctrine of God. This is huge because God is the one we worship. And, and even when things are chaotic in the world, God is worth considering. Christians believe that God has one, one singular will, which means that God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Spirit have the same will. Now, this does not mean that they simply agree about what they want. We tend to think our wills, uh, probably being in our, in our mind or, or in our heart, our wills, you know, from one of those, wherever you think of it being, uh, our wills, our desires can be aligned with someone else's in agreement. We can, we can want the same thing. And so in a metaphorical way, we say we have the same desire or the same will. But the persons in the Trinity, this is difficult for us to fathom, uh, in our minds, uh, the persons in the Godhead don't have separate wills to agree. God, all three persons in God, have one will. To put this crassly, if our will is our wanter, the thing that wants in us, then the Father, Son, and Spirit all have the exact same wanter in the divine essence. It's always a bad idea to try to illustrate the Trinity, uh, but I'm going to try maybe to get something up close to being about this. So if we think about um, if someone's liver is injured, actually physicians can split another liver and transplant part of that liver into someone else with the injured liver. So in that sense, two people have the same exact liver. Now, I get that in that instance it was one and it was split, and that's not the way it is in the Godhead, but I'm trying to show how uh, the point I want to make with that illustration is that the persons of the Godhead have the exact same will. And that's important because this passage of Scripture shows Jesus asked the Father for something that wasn't the eternal will of the God of the Godhead. That different request coming from the incarnate Son tells us that Jesus Christ, as God's Son in human nature, had that one divine will, but also had a human will. He had two wills. He had two wanters. He had the divine wanter, the divine will, according to his deity, and he had a human will, a human wanter, according to his humanity. Now, this is really relevant for you, because we see that our own Savior wrestled with God in prayer over things that were obviously very difficult for him. Christ can indeed sympathize with you when you feel worn out or distraught in prayer because he too has been there. 
And it's also relevant for you because Jesus died to save us from sin's consequences and effects. One of those effects was that our desires, our wills, were corrupted. Because Jesus took on every aspect of what it is, what is necessarily human, including our will, his death was able to remove sin's effects on our will as Christians. Because Jesus had a human will, his saving work can repair your desires. Christ works in you to restore your ability to want godly things. So the Christ who prayed was God's eternal son who came in a human nature. And the second point we're going to consider is the way that Christ prayed. So, right, okay, the reason that we read Mark's gospel from verse 22, even though Christ's prayer is contained in verses 32 to 42, is that we need to understand what Christ already knew before he went to go pray that prayer in Gethsemane. So Mark 14.24 tells us that Jesus knew he was going to die on the cross and that his death would bring about the forgiveness of his people's sin. So that verse says, And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He instituted the Lord's Supper and pointed to the cup as his blood poured out for others. He knew that he had to die on the cross to bear the curse of God's wrath. Now further, verses 27 and 28 confirm that Jesus knew that he would give his life to forgive his people. Those verses say, And Jesus said to them, You will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So there he quoted Zechariah 13.7 to show that the scripture was about him, not only in the certainty of his death, which God had appointed as the means to forgive his people, even in that eternal plan of redemption, but also the certainty that his disciples would abandon him at his death and and further that he would rise from the grave again. So we see that Jesus knew that he would die. Yet in verse 36, we read, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, Not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was the eternal God. Jesus' shared will, according to his divinity, had planned the Son's death as the means to forgive sin. Yet, Jesus still asked the Father that the burden of this plan pass from him. Jesus wanted according to his human nature, to avoid bearing God's curse. And so he prayed for that. Now I have to counter an objection here, because someone might be asking if if Jesus was wrong to pray for what he knew was not in God's eternal plan. 
Certainly not. He was not wrong. Uh, Jesus was without sin. Jesus was the only one to be without sin. So actually, there was nothing possibly sinful about wanting not to endure the curse of sin if you're a sinless person. God the Son had enjoyed perfect, unbroken fellowship with his Father in in eternity and in the Incarnation, but knew that he was about to undergo the full force of God's just wrath against sin, and sin that wasn't his. There was nothing wrong in knowing that he would not enjoy enduring the Father's curse. In some ways, it was right not to want that, since it blossomed from a perfect love for his Father and a desire not to experience a a breach of that communion of sorts, even according to his incarnate life. Still, we see that Christ prayed in a way that he really wrestled with God. That's the way he prayed. Verse 39 And he went away and prayed, saying the same words. He did not give up lightly. That brings us to our third point. Uh, And we're going to consider the way that Jesus teaches us to pray. So we've seen that, that Jesus is the true God who shared one will with the Godhead according to his deity. We saw that He wrestled with God in prayer about his desires that he had according to his humanity. And and I want to think now about what Jesus' example teaches us about how we should pray. So first, the first application takeaways, there is no excuse not to pray about something. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And yet he prayed about it. Jesus prayed thoroughly. Even though he knew God ordained everything that comes to pass, and he knew exactly what God had ordained to come to pass, since he himself is God, that leaves us, who do not have perfect insight into the divine counsel, with absolutely no reason not to pray. We have to be a praying people. Second, We have to pray urgently and earnestly. So in Luke 22, 44, uh, that gospel adds another detail about Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane that Mark omitted. That verse says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus was so burdened that he labored in prayer that he sweat blood. The application to us is certainly that we need fervor, earnestness, and diligence in our prayer. I mean here in regard to the frequency of our prayer, although certainly that that is true. I mean, though, right now that your prayers should be heartfelt and intense as you bring things before the living God. Third, we have to be bold but submissive in our prayers. 
And I think this is, is in some ways the, the meat, the heart of, of what this really challenges us to do. Jesus prayed for exactly what was on his heart. He, he prayed because he did not relish the thought of enduring God's wrath for us, even though he knew that he would bear that curse. Look, look at verse 36 again. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus stated God's power and rightfully acknowledged the dynamic of this relationship. So the incarnate Christ was a servant. And still, Jesus outright said, remove this cup from me. I find it striking how he did not dilute that statement with, I would really like it if, or, or if you please. He, he stated his request with raw intensity because he, he trusted the Father to receive his prayers. He was bold. Still, he was submissive. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He did not presume that God had to do what he asked, nor did he presume that his boldness had inverted the relationship of who was the servant. This phrase was a statement that Jesus resigned himself into God's will because it is best. I wonder if that is how we pray. I think sometimes I, others, use the phrase, if it be your will, not because we have resigned ourselves into God's hands after we have thoroughly wrestled with God, but because we're afraid of stating our desires outright before God in the first place. I think I can use that phrase as a, as a safety net so that it doesn't feel like I'm asking too much or so that I'm not disappointed with God's answer. When you pray that God's will done, let me challenge you to, to use it because you have really gotten to grips with God in prayer, wrestled through the issues with your God, and have come to peace with those things as a servant in God's hands, rather than, you know, at, at the outset as a safety net so that it doesn't feel like you're being really bold before God's throne. Why would I challenge us in that way? Yeah. The reason that is foremost in my mind is that I think prayer is a tool that God uses to give us peace with whatever comes to pass. So 
Reverend Pearson reflected on Philippians 4 not that long ago, and verses 6 and 7 say, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the results, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace will guard our hearts as a result of praying to God in thanksgiving and supplication. If you want peace, despite the turmoil swirling around you, pray. Westminster Shorter Catechism 88 does list prayer as an ordinary, effectual means that God uses to communicate the benefits of redemption to us. God uses prayer for believers as a tool to further our sanctification as we wrestle with God unto submission to His will. Prayer brings us about to deeper godliness when we really fight through things with God. Not fighting against Him, but fighting in our own hearts before God in prayer. Jesus prayed, right? Seeing that in the text, the way that it ends, Jesus seems so much more settled. He received peace and and settled himself to carry on gladly in God's plan. But we should not neglect what that plan was. That plan was to go to the cross to bear God's curse on behalf of all of his people. God's son went to the cross in human nature because you are guilty of sin. And someone had to pay your death penalty if you were to have eternal life. We have seen some of how much that cost today in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. But we know what it means by thinking how Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And that joy was to have you, Christian, as his bride, if you trust in him by faith. All of the agony he experienced under God's just wrath on that cross should be ours. But Jesus went through that to forgive you. Yes, look to Jesus as an example to imitate in all aspects of life, including the way that we pray. But don't look to him merely as an example. Look to him as Savior, the perfect man whose prayers were not answered with the sole purpose that if you believe in Jesus, God can answer your prayers because Christ has made you God's beloved child. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the record of Christ's prayer in Gethsemane. We thank you 
what this prayer teaches us about how we ought to pray. That it shows us that we really do need to wrestle through everything in our hearts before you. And it also teaches us that we are best placed when we submit ourselves into your hands in fullness. God, we pray that you would help us to digest that truth and that we would come away from this reflection on this text with a a more robust prayer life that we would be eager to pray in a really heartfelt way that we would be working through the desires of our hearts why we want them our motivations for praying that way with you in prayer god make prayer an effectual means uh, an ordinary one, as we can formally gather under word and sacrament, those other two ordinary means of grace right now. God, work in your people, especially your people of LCPC, to cherish that third means of grace, prayer, that we would be recipients of immense grace during this time. And that you would work in us to receive that grace through prayer. God, we cherish our relationship with you. And we need to develop that by praying. And so, Lord, make us a praying people. And help us to love our prayer life. I don't want the these emphases of recent times on prayer to become a new law a burden. I pray, God, that you make your people love time in prayer with you, that it is sweet, that it is beneficial, that it is joyful. We do think about deep things sometimes in sermons. We we think about the incarnate Christ himself, no deeper reality than that. But Lord, we do that because we want deeper reasons to love you. And so we pray that this message would even have that effect, that we would grow, that we abound in love for you, and that that would send us into sweet times of prayer. We do ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.